Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of the book of Mark. Last week, we actually made it through the entire second chapter. I know that's pretty phenomenal for me. But hey, it's a book that moves quickly. In the lesson last week, we saw multiple examples of Jesus getting into conflict with different groups of religious leaders. Remember, it started with this whole idea of Jesus telling the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And everybody got ticked off at him because nobody but God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, well, what's harder, to tell somebody your sins are forgiven or to tell the person to get up and walk? But so that you will know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, he tells the man to get up and walk. And the religious leaders are very ticked off. And we see more of that at the beginning of today's lesson. So let's start in chapter 3 at verse 1. And he entered the synagogue. Now, remember, Sabbath, all the men went to the synagogue. This is very normal. He would go into a synagogue and he would actually be allowed to teach because he was a popular teacher in the area. And he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Something was wrong with his hand. He couldn't move it. Now, what we're going to see is a setup. My contention is this man was brought here for a reason. Let's read the next sentence. And they, who's the they? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees that we've been talking about. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So, he is entering the synagogue. They knew he was going to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath day, so my contention is they brought this guy along and said, come with us. And they set him down in front of Jesus, and they wanted to know if Jesus was going to break the law by healing this man on the Sabbath. Now, first we have to ask ourselves, is it really breaking the law to heal a guy on the Sabbath? First off, nobody in this room, nobody in the room in this synagogue, with the exception of Jesus, could have done it. But Jesus is going to ask them the question. They brought him in, not so that they could see a miracle and praise God, not so they could listen to his teaching, so they could trap him, so they could accuse him. That is their goal in coming to church. Oh, wait. We would never do that. And he, Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So he saw the man and he said, come here. Stand right here. Exhibit A. Then he turns to the them, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, you have to remember, 
The scribes and the Pharisees were the experts in the law. If you had a question about the law, you would go to a scribe or a Pharisee and say, what's the right thing to do in this particular situation? What does the law say about this particular situation? So Jesus asked them a perfectly legitimate question. What does the law say? Can I heal? Can I kill? Can I do good? Can I do bad? And the scribes and Pharisees are professionals at this. If anybody could give an answer, they ought to be able to give an answer. And what does it say? They were quiet. Here were people who were professionals at defending the law, and they would not answer his question. That is the type of question that he, they were used to handling. Why wouldn't they answer his question? Because they were out to trap him. Their goal was to trap Jesus so they could accuse him of violating the religious law. And Jesus is going to get ticked off. But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Let's just stop right there. Jesus is mad. Is that okay? Well, Jesus is doing it, so it's got to be okay, right? <laughs> Why is he angry at them? He is both angry at them and he is grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. Turn, if you would, over to Romans chapter 1. We have talked in here on numerous occasions about hardening our hearts. And so we're going to talk again today just a little bit about what was wrong with the scribes and Pharisees that would prompt them to bring this guy in for the sole purpose of accusing Jesus. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See that word wrath? That is the exact same word in Mark that is translated angry. The anger of God is the wrath of God that is directed toward the unrighteousness of this world. The wrath of God is revealed. And guess what? God is righteous to do that. Now, we have trouble with that. In the same way, we have trouble with the fact that Jesus is angry at them because of this situation. Aren't we not supposed to be angry at people? Well, the scripture kind of leads us to believe, because it says, be angry and sin not. 
that it is theoretically possible to be angry and not be in a sinful state. The problem is not that sentence. The problem is me. I, I get angry. And I can almost guarantee you, not almost, I can guarantee you I'm not getting angry about righteous things. I'm getting angry because I'm not getting my way. I am not getting what I think I deserve, so I get angry because my ego is bruised. That's not God's problem. That's not Jesus' problem. God is holy and righteous, and when He demonstrates His wrath, it is a righteous judgment on sin in this world. So when Jesus gets angry at the scribes and the Pharisees, He is righteous to do that. But notice that His anger is not the only emotion that He has. He is angry, and at the same time He grieves... He is saddened by the hardness of their heart. Now, the whole purpose of the book of Mark is to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. Repeatedly, we're going to see. In fact, if we make it all the way through chapter 3 today, we'll see the demons themselves saying, you are the Son of God. So if the demons will say it, if God will say it, if the centurion at the end of the book will say it, if Jesus will say it, why don't we believe it? Because there's something wrong with us. And that something that is wrong with us is the hardness of our hearts. Let's remind ourselves, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that organ inside of your body that pumps blood. What it's talking about is the center of your being, your mind, your will, and emotions, who you really are. So what does it mean to have a hard heart? Well, we sometimes use that phrase today. Uh, we talk about a soft-hearted person being very emotional and a hard-hearted person being very rational and unemotional. But I'm not sure that's what the Scripture is talking about. When the Scripture talks about a hard heart, it is talking about someone who refuses to acknowledge who God is, refuses to repent and eliminate through the power of God the sin in their lives. It's like this. You do something you know you shouldn't do. And this voice inside of you, we'll call it the conscience. Well, you can also call it the Holy Spirit. Comes to you and says, that was bad, don't do it. And you go, eh, whatever. And the next time you do it, and your conscience says, don't do it. And you go, eh. And the next time you do it, your conscience says, don't do it. And you go, eh. And the next time you do it, your conscience says, and you don't even hear. Why? Because your heart has become hard. Now, 
when we talk about hardness of heart, usually we go back to the story of Moses and the plagues and Pharaoh. Even in the New Testament, when they want to talk about hard hearts, they talk about Pharaoh. Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, heck no, I'm not going to do it. So Moses, through the power of God, brings about a plague. Pharaoh says, oh, shoot, that's horrible. And then he says, no, because it says his heart is hardened. But there's this strange thing that's happening. Ten times this happens in the book of Exodus. And some of those times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And some of those times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, who did what to whom? Who is it that is causing the hardness of the heart. Are you still over in Romans? For the wrath of God is revealed. Blah, blah, blah. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. What we see in Romans chapter 1 is this downward spiral of sin. They should have known God, and at that point, he's talking about all of humanity. We should have known God, but we chose to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And it says God gave them up. What is that giving up? What God is allowing is you to do what you want to do. And that's a horrible thing. And what that is, is a hardening of our hearts. When we refuse to acknowledge God, God allows us, God gives us over to our hardened heart. God has created this world with certain constraints. We look at the world, we read the newspaper, we watch the news, we do whatever it is we do, and we look at all the horrible things going on in this world. But in reality, it could be worse. But there are restraints that God has put into this world. What if God says, I'm going to pull that restraint back? I'm just going to let you do what you want to do. And what that is, is the hardening of our hearts. When we refuse to see what God has done, when we refuse to acknowledge, when we refuse to repent of our sins, our hearts are hardened. I've told you this story before. I was teaching years ago in a much younger class. And I was talking about Pharaoh and the hardening of our hearts. 
And this nice young lady raised her hand and said, do you think God would harden somebody's heart today? And I hemmed and hawed and tried to not answer the question. And she asked the question again. And I hemmed and hawed and tried to not answer the question. And she asked the question again. And I said, yes, God has not changed. We have not changed. And she says, I can't accept that. I can't believe that God would do that. And that's why we do not believe in the wrath of God. And that's why when Jesus gets ticked off, we think there's something wrong with Jesus. Jesus was angry. He was wrathful. But he also grieved because he was looking at the religious leaders. These are the people who were guiding the people of Israel. These were the people who were responsible for the spiritual direction of the nation of Israel, and their hearts were hardened. A nation, a group, a community, a church, a family, any group of people are in a bad way when the religious leaders' hearts are hardened to the movement of God. And that's what Jesus saw. Jesus had been healing hundreds of people. We keep seeing this, and we're going to see it again in today's lesson. People are coming from everywhere because they're hearing the wonderful things that Jesus is doing. You would think that if I was the leader, I'd go, this is pretty great. This is pretty cool. People are being healed. Remember when John sends his John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the guy or should we wait for somebody else? What does Jesus say? He doesn't give a theological discussion. He says, look at what I'm doing. Because the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to heal the sick, going to make the blind to see, is going to free the prisoner, and that's what I'm doing. Why couldn't the religious leaders see what Jesus was doing and that it was a good thing? Because their hearts were hardened. Their religion had become a system of keeping a set of rules to demonstrate to those around them that they were vastly superior to the people around them. I want you to think that I am pretty hot stuff because I can keep a list of rules longer than you can imagine. Now, I will add, we, we see in the interactions with Jesus, religious officials coming to him, going, hey, tell me about what's really happening. So there is some hope. But the official religious leaders are looking for a reason to accuse him. And they're doing it because their hearts are hardened. Now, I can't get off this without answering one question, though. 
What if we have a hardened heart? Is there hope if we, in fact, are the ones that have the hardened heart? The answer is yes. There is always hope. Paul, Saul, who became Paul, was about as hardened as you could get. And God zapped him, and God transformed him, and God changed him. When we are confronted with the reality of our sin, and we are led by the Spirit to respond, and we respond, God can change our hardened heart. If we make it to the end of this chapter, there is an unforgivable sin down at the bottom of this chapter. But as long as you have breath in your lungs and you respond to the Holy Spirit moving in your life, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Trust me. What is the point of all of that? Do not harden your heart. When we say no, when we should be saying yes, when we say yes and we should be saying no, we are hardening our hearts. When we respond to the Spirit, when we respond to the Holy Spirit, when we respond to what God is telling us to do, then our hearts are softened and it prepares us to be more open to the movement of God in our lives. <sighs> Maybe we won't make it through this chapter. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, this is a really interesting question that he asked. Notice the contrast. Is it okay to do good or to do harm? Well, it's never okay to do harm. It's always okay to do good. Even on the Sabbath day, it's okay to do good. Even under the strictest interpretation of Jewish law, if your neighbor's ox falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, you go out there and help get the ox out of the pit because it is doing good. Now, in case that doesn't convince you, you can go back to last week's lesson when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Do good. Do good at all times. So the reality is Jesus is not violating the Jewish law by healing this guy on the Sabbath day. Just remember that. This isn't Jesus thumbing his nose at the Old Testament law. That's not a problem. Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think I have come to abolish the law. In fact, I have come to fulfill it in every jot and tittle. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, you're sitting in that room. You're sitting in that room, and you see this happen. 
What is your response going to be? Wow, isn't that cool? Isn't that great? Isn't that magnificent? Praise God, God has healed this person. Unless you're a Pharisee or a scribe and you're going, we got to get rid of this guy. Now let's just stop right there. We'll talk about it maybe more later, but let's just stop right there. Why do they want to get rid of him? Why do they care? I mean, he's healing people. They care because they are losing their power and their influence, and they don't like it. God is obviously moving and working in their midst, and they don't care because they are losing their power and authority. You see, with the life of John the Baptist, we see the right answer. Remember that famous phrase? He tells people, he, Jesus, must increase, and I, John, must decrease. I am simply here to prepare the way. That's the right answer. The Pharisees were not willing to respond in that way. He must be put down so that we can maintain our position in society. We cannot lose our position in society. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That is their goal. Now, this is interesting in and of itself. Who were the Herodians? Well, the Herodians are kind of a political party of those Jews who are working with King Herod. They are the Herodians. They're sitting there thinking, we've got to help Herod maintain order in this area. There is some speculation that they actually thought they could help bring in the kingdom of God by getting Herod to work things out and bring it about through political methods. Be that as it may, the Herodians and the Pharisees didn't get along with each other. The Pharisees were at best separatists. They wanted to not be guilty of associating with anything unseemly. They weren't going to get involved with the Romans. They weren't going to get involved with Herod. They weren't going to get involved with people who were involved with the Romans or Herod. But they had a common enemy here, and that common enemy was Jesus. They were willing to put aside their natural animosity toward the Herodians, and they were saying, we need to get rid of this guy. Why would anyone want to get rid of Jesus? Why would anyone want to destroy Jesus? Well, I actually know the answer to that question. Because people, because of their hardened hearts, have been wanting to get rid of God 
of Jesus, the Son of God, of any connection to him since the beginning of time. What we see is this group, this mob of people, excited because God is doing miraculous things in their midst. And then we have another group of people who want to get rid of him with every fiber of their being. And guess what? This is alive and well in the world today. Always has been, always will be, until Christ returns. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and great crowds followed them from Galilee and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Simply put, people are coming from all over. Why? Because they've heard about what he's doing. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus ordered them the spirits, not to make him, the Son of God, known to the people. We weren't quite ready for that. But look at what Mark is telling us. Even the demonic forces acknowledge who Jesus is. They might want to destroy him, but they at least know who it is they want to destroy. So, you see the scene. There's mobs of people. Everyone sick within the whole region is coming to be next to Jesus because they want to be healed. That makes sense. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom also are named apostles. What does apostle mean? It's simply somebody that is sent, sent to proclaim some message so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother James, to whom he gave the name Barneta, that is, the sons of thunder. You kind of wonder what the story is behind that, right? I'm going to call you the sons of thunder. Is that a good thing? Bad thing? Humorous thing? Eh. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. A little foreshadowing. So, Jesus has picked his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. I might add, there are lots of people in the scripture that are called disciples. We are called to be, to be disciples. There are actually others who are going to be called apostles. Paul, we know for sure, was called to be an apostle. But this is his inner circle. And within this, there is an inner inner circle that we'll meet later. Why these 12? Why this weird group of people? We have fishermen. We've talked about that. We have a tax collector, 
We've talked about that, and that's a really bad thing. We even have a zealot. Well, what's the, what in the world is a zealot? Well, we think of a zealot being somebody who's zealous. We want to be zealous for something. Well, that's not what this phrase means in this context. The zealots were those who wanted to drive the Romans out of the area by force. Not force as in, we're going to make an army, they're going to make an army, our two armies are going to fight, we're going to win, and we're going to drive them out. Because they knew they couldn't do that. They were using force like there's a Roman soldier in the dark alley by himself and I sneak up behind him with my knife and I take care of him. That's who the zealots were. In today's terms, they would be terrorists. Okay? As the old saying goes, though, one man's terrorist is another man's patriot. We're not going to get into that discussion. So we have... We have Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, a guy who worked for the Romans, and we have a zealot sitting there around the campfire. I wouldn't get too close to him. I may be close enough to being a Roman to warrant a little attention after the sun goes down. Now, why did he pick these people? Well, the passage tells us he picked them so that he would teach them. He could send them out to preach. He gave them authority to cast out demons. He gave them the power to do what he had been doing. What became of this group of people? We're going to jump way ahead for just one moment because I find this story fascinating. This group is going to spend three years with Jesus, living with him, walking with him, seeing miraculous things happen. It's going to be great. And then Jesus is crucified. And this group of 12 scatter. To me, this is the biggest argument against Jesus not being raised from the dead. You see, people would have us believe that Jesus was crucified and this group of 12 people that I just listed their names, oh, except Judas, he killed himself after betraying Jesus. This group of 11 that were left got together in a dark room and said, okay, our leader's dead, let's tell people that he rose from the dead. Let's tell people that he walked among us. Let's tell people that he ascended into heaven and let's start a worldwide movement. That's stupid. That makes no sense at all. When Jesus died, they all scattered. It was over. They went back to being fishermen. And then they saw the resurrected Lord. And then what happened? This group changed the world. And what happened to them? 
It is not in the book of Acts, since the book of Acts ends before that. But according to church history, this is what happened to them. Crucified, beaten then crucified, stoned to death, beheaded, stoned to death, speared to death, crucified upside down, crucified, crucified, speared to death, stoned to death. The only one of them that is going to die a natural death is John. Why? Because God still had something left for him to do. So they exiled him. Church tradition says they tried to kill him. They threw him in a vat of oil, hot oil, and it had no effect on him. So what do you do with a guy that you can't kill? You exile him to the island of Patmos. What does he do when he's on the island of Patmos? He writes the book of Revelation. So we have 12 nobodies who follow a guy who run away as soon as he dies, and then they go change the world, and they're willing to die for their faith. Every one of them is willing to die for their faith. Why? Because it was a lie and they knew it was a lie? That just doesn't make sense. Lots of people die for things that are really lies, but they don't know that it's a lie. To die for something that you know is a lie is just stupid. They died for their faith because they had seen the risen Lord. And that changed everything. So, who are these 12? They're nobodies that God used to change the world. Remember that, because we're going to see a lot about them in the months to come. <sighs> then he went home. What a strange phrase. And the crowd gathered around him so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He is nuts. This is his family talking to him. Now, the, the structure of this is kind of interesting because that phrase actually continues in verse 31. But it's like he's having this meeting. His family comes to seize him, but before they can seize him, more people show up to get him. You ready for this? Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem... Let's just stop right there. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, these are the bigwigs. These aren't the local scribes and Pharisees. These are the guys from Jerusalem. They had been hearing about all this. Their local scribes and Pharisees had been writing to them. There's this guy. We don't know what to do about him. What should we do about him? Please come help us. And they send the big guns out. This is the guy coming from the big institution to help you solve your problem. And their problem was what to do about Jesus. So they come. And they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Wait a minute. That's the best you got? He's demon-possessed. Now, it is interesting who Beelzebul is, 
Um, one way of taking this is that it's just another word for Satan himself, because in a moment, Satan is going to be mentioned. Um, technically, he's a Canaanite god. Remember way back there in the Old Testament when they were sacrificing their children to Baal? That's who they were sacrificing to. Most likely, he is a demonic force. Depending on which medieval writer you read, he is either one of the top three demons, Satan being one, he being one, and somebody else, or he's one of the top seven. They had all kinds of long discussions about demonology that I'm really not into. He was a demonic force. Just as an aside, what does that word Beelzebul mean? It means Lord of the Flies. You ever read the book, Lord of the Flies? About the boys going berserk on the island and all that stuff, and they end up worshiping the flies. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. So, when in doubt, tell people your opponent is possessed by a demon. I'm the big guy. I'm the intelligent guy from the big institution, and I've come down, and the best story I can come up with is that he's possessed by a demon. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables. I think this word parable is odd in this context. It's kind of, he's going to give them these little proverbs, these little one-liners that we repeat all the time. Even Abraham Lincoln repeated these sentences. But let's see what he says. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Why in the world would the demonic forces be divided in such a way that one demon is doing something that another demon doesn't want done? Why would one demon fight against Satan? Why would Satan fight against Satan? That just doesn't make any sense. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. I want to go into your house and take your stuff. But let's say it's not you. Let's say that it's Chuck Norris in his early days. You've heard Chuck Norris jokes, right? My daughter loves them. She's right here. What is the best one? Chuck Norris could take a... If I'm going to break in to the strong man's house, I've got to do something about the strong man first. And if I tie up the strong man, then I can go in and take his stuff. So who is the strong man? Well, let's say it's Satan. If I'm going to break in and free these people who are demon-possessed, what has to happen first? I've got to be stronger than the strong man. I've got to be able to bind him so that I can free those who are demon-possessed of their demons 
and I can set them free. His response to the idea that he is in fact demon-possessed is that doesn't make any sense. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. The demonic forces aren't fighting demonic forces. They're all in cahoots, whatever that means. They're all working together. Now, elsewhere, Jesus does kind of follow up this with a question. If I'm doing miracles because of the demonic forces, who do you claim your predecessors who did miracles did them? Whose power did they have to do the wicked, evil deeds? I mean, the, the miraculous deeds. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and who, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. What is blasphemy in this context right here? These people are saying that the works of God are being done by demonic forces. That is blasphemy. When I ascribe to some other cause that which is done by God, I am committing blasphemy. But here's the thing that he says. All that can be forgiven. All that can be forgiven. But there is one thing that cannot be forgiven. And that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not necessarily accusing them of crossing that line. But he is telling them to watch it. So what is this unforgivable, unpardonable sin. I am an unbeliever. And the Spirit of God moves in my life. I hear the word, the Spirit uses it in my life, and the Spirit says, come. And I say, no. And the next day, the Spirit says, come. And I say, no. And the next year, the next decade, however long gives, God gives me life, I say no to the movement of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling the Spirit, no, go away. If I die, having continued to reject the Holy Spirit's movement in my life, there is no plan B for salvation. There is no other way to get into heaven without responding to the movement of the Spirit in my life to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There is no plan B. The unpardonable sin is to tell the Holy Spirit no till the day I die. And there is no plan B. So, I know what you're thinking. Have I committed it? Or do I know somebody that's committed it? 
Well, let me give you the hopeful answer. It's back to our discussion of hardening our hearts. As long as there is breath in our lungs, we can respond to the Holy Spirit. As long as there is breath in our lungs, we can allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and to soften our hardened hearts. But if we refuse, there is no plan B. There is no other name written in heaven by which you may be saved. Rejection completely is the unpardonable sin. We are out of time. But let me just read the last three, four verses. And his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. This is picking up to the, he's crazy, we've got to go rescue him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, is he rejecting his mother and his brothers? No. What he's telling us is that I have a relationship that I am going to establish with you that is as strong as the relationship with your natural-born relatives. I know. Some of you have natural-born relatives you don't think much of, but we're not going to go there. We are not going to go there. Jesus is coming to establish a spiritual family. A spiritual family connected by what? Those who do the will of God. What is the will of God? That you respond to the Holy Spirit, that you not harden your heart, that you not say no to the Spirit. And if you respond positively to the will of God, you are in fact in the family of God. And you know what? That's kind of a big deal. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the miracles you have done in softening our hard hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.